Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a woman experiences hell and heaven during a near-death experience. Behind me was a creature, but he had many heads. He was a horrifying creature. I could feel the intensity of terror that reeked from his very presence. Hey, if you haven't already done so, please take a moment and fill in a short survey. It won't take but a minute, and it helps me know more about my listeners. This kind of information is really important for small independent podcasters like me. You'd be really helping me out here. I've included the link in the episode notes, but I'll give you the URL now as well. It's http colon double forward slash survey.libsyn.com L-I-B-S-Y-N forward slash conspiracy hyphen unlimited again http colon double forward slash survey.libsyn L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com forward slash conspiracy hyphen unlimited thank you so much Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. 
Hey, welcome to your Wednesday. I asked someone the other day, how's your week going? And he said in a very matter of fact way, I'm having a week from hell. We've all heard that from time to time. We've all said that from time to time. But anyway, all I could offer him was a glib quote from the great Winston Churchill. If you're going through hell, well, keep going. Didn't seem to help, but it's a great line. Speaking of hell, according to a recent study from the Pew Research Center, Americans' belief in hell is in decline across generations from baby boomers to Generation X to millennials. But for author and speaker Tamara LaRue, the afterlife became real when a suicide attempt led to a divine visitation to both heaven and hell. Tamara LaRue is an author, speaker, and co-founder of Life Change International with her husband Rodney. Together, they have had the joy of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in more than 40 countries and through numerous media outlets. Tamara is a passionate Bible teacher who loves sharing the truth about Jesus with the brokenhearted. Tamara and Rodney live in Houston, Texas with their three children. She is the author of A Second Chance at Heaven. Tamara LaRue, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing really well, Richard. I appreciate the opportunity for you to allow me to speak out on such a sensitive and uncomfortable subject for most. Well, uh, catching a glimpse of hell uh, is, uh, I would imagine, <laughs> most uncomfortable, and we'll explore that in a moment. <laughs> we were just sort of talking off air about the humidity in Houston, uh, but uh, that's nothing compared to what <laughs> you got a glimpse of. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's pretty cool here compared sure <laughs> comparatively speaking but on a serious note take us back to your teenage your troubled teenage life and what could have driven you to try and take your own life you know richard i think that you know looking back i'm, I'm such a different person now from when i was you know growing up and it's been so many years and i i hear in the media um you know so many hope high profile people all ages you know, from teenagers to adults um, that are suffering and going through a lot of what I went through as a teenager. And when I look back and I reflect about the way, the things I experienced and the way I thought, um, I believed a lot of lies. I believed lies about myself. I, you know, was in an environment of a, of a divorce where there was a, a family that was split. So I went through a lot of rejection. I went through, a, you know, a lot of abandonment, things of that, of that nature. And it caused me to really reject myself, um, realizing that, you know, I wasn't really like a lot of my friends. I thought different from them. I wasn't, you know, always out for just the self, you know, I wasn't always wanting to be mean to people. <laughs> you know, I just didn't think like that. And so, you know, being around my friends, I felt like I was different. And so being at home, I felt like I was isolated. And, you know, just one, it wasn't one event. It was an event after another event after another event that it just really built, you know, to the point to where I just completely lost hope. I lost complete hope. I didn't think that anything in this life um, was anything that I wanted. I didn't, I looked at it to think uh, from the perspective of, you know, I know I'm a teenager. I know I'm very young. I know I have my entire life to live and I'm going to get older. I'm going to get wiser. I'm going to get smarter. My circumstances are going to change. 
But what is on the inside of me is not changing, and it can't change. And I was so empty, and I was so hollow on the inside of me. I had such a void on the inside, and I didn't see any hope of ever getting that void filled. That's interesting because to me, it sounds like as a young teen, you were the one that had your head screwed on right, and you didn't want to be this mean person. Uh, and and it seems to me that you were, you know, you were filled with it sounds like goodness, and and yet you were the one with the void. Right, and you know, and that's why you look at the age, and you look at so many people, and you think, you know, they've got it all. I mean, like all the high profile people, these you know, very wealthy executives and people in Hollywood, and you look at them, and you think, my gosh, they've got the friends, they've got the fame, they've got the money, they've got the family. They, what is it that they're lacking? And that's where I was. And oftentimes in our culture, we say people who want to commit suicide, it's a mental issue. They have a mental disorder. They're crazy. They, they want attention. They're, they're not right. They're logically off. And they just need a bunch of pills to straighten up their brain patterns. And I knew that's not what was wrong with me. I knew that that was not the case. And even at that young age as a teenager, I could identify that a pill was not going to fix me. Because right. it was it, something down on the inside. wasn't a psychological problem. It was a spiritual problem. It, you said it, Richard. It was a spiritual problem. It was a spiritual problem that affected my emotions and affected the way I thought. They affected my perception. And it was definitely spiritual. And I didn't understand that because I believed in God. I believed that there was a God. I believed that God was a God of love. I didn't know him, I didn't have a personal relationship with him, but I believed he was a good God and that, you know, he didn't send good people to hell. And I knew that I needed to ask forgiveness from him. And so I did. So when, you know, that day came, I just, I, the day came and I had finally just said, I've had enough. You know, I can't take this anymore. I don't want to take this anymore. Well, were you, were you, had you turned to alcohol or drugs? What was... Uh, I mean, were you being abused? Can you can you share that with me? Sure. You know, abuse is a big, wide range of, of abuse. And, you know, you think um, people in that circumstances could be being molested on a regular basis and, and could be going through those things. And, you know, I, I did have some challenges in that area. I was not, it was a regular thing, but I did go through some abuse. Um, but I felt like I had overcome that. I felt like I was able to separate myself, that that wasn't really why I didn't like myself. I didn't like myself because no, I felt nothing I did pleased everybody. You know, I was a people pleaser. I wanted to make other people happy, and I couldn't, and it seemed like I failed at every turn. And it seemed that the more I tried, the worse it was, and this void inside me was not being filled. I, I turned to drugs. I, you know, I experimented with the drugs. I experimented with the alcohol, and it made it worse. And how it old were you at this better. point? How old were you? I was 15. 15. I was very young. Drinking regularly? No, I was, I didn't drink regularly. I did enough to experiment with it. I wasn't something, you know, I know uh, so often in our culture today, we have kids that begin having drinking, actual problems where they're drinking continually throughout the week and, you know, binge drinking and things of that nature. And that wasn't me. I would go out and I would binge every now and then. Uh, you know, on the alcohol, because that's what all the teenagers were doing. You know, I was from West Texas, and that's, you know, 
pop your beer and sit on the back of your truck. And you know, that right. was kind of the way we did Friday nights, right? Mm. But that was not the answer. And I knew that wasn't the answer. And when I did those things, it made me feel more guilty and more shameful. And I knew that it wasn't right. And I knew that it wasn't going to fix the void inside me. I knew that it was not the solution. And so you thought at some low point that the solution was your mother's gun? You know, as crazy as it sounds, it, was, it wasn't that it was like a solution. It was I wanted to stop the pain. I wanted the inward pain to stop. You know, everyone looked at me as I was a happy-go-lucky person. I was always laughing. I was always smiling. And, but on the inside, I was crying, and I was hurting, and I just wanted to stop the pain. And I didn't feel like getting older or changing circumstances or getting a job, getting smarter was ever going to do that. And so that was the day that I just said, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to hurt anymore. I don't want to be in this position where I have this hole on the inside of me that cannot be filled. So you... So that's that's you, it. I'm you, done. You found your mother's handgun... I did. She kept it. My um, dad traveled a lot, and so I knew where she kept it. You know, we were from West Texas. We believe in the, you know, carrying the carrying the guns and packing them. And I, you know, so that was a, a, a thing around my house. So I knew where they were, um, knew how to use them, had been trained to use them. That had absolutely no um, bearing on my decision um, or anything like that. My parents were very wise in the way they trained me. Um, it was not that. It was just that. I didn't, I wanted to succeed. You know, there's many ways to, to do what I did. You wanted to succeed in killing I, yourself, you mean? I wanted to succeed in killing myself. I wanted there to be absolutely no way that I was going to live another minute. I was done. I was done hurting. I was done um, going through the pain. I was done seeking all the answers. I had come up void every answer I sought. And so I wanted to do it. Um, with a firearm because I knew that that would be a sure way to complete my mission. You shot yourself in the chest. I did. So I went in and I got my gun and before, or got my mom's gun, and before I did that, I cried out, Richard, this is such an important thing is, you know, I cried out to God and I cried out to the true and living God and I asked him, I said, please forgive me because I believe that once I do this, I cannot ask for forgiveness. So I'm going to ask for forgiveness before I do this with this, you know, so in, in hope that that was the only hope I had. The only hope I could muster up was a slight hope that God would forgive me for what I was about to do. But you, so you believed in a God, but you also surely you knew that what you were about to do is considered, you know, the one unforgivable sin. Well, there's much debate about that. Mm. And I do, um, I do believe that. Um, it's murder. It's self-murder. And when you once you die, you there's no turning back. And if you are committing murder, you know, before a holy God, you're right. Mm. You're right. You are condemning yourself. Well, and because also, right, with suicide, what you're doing is you're turning your back on God. I mean, I think, I think even a murderer can be forgiven. But if you take your own life, you're turning your back, right? Well, I think that we look at things different. I certainly was not surrendering my life to the Lord. I certainly was not surrendering uh, his authority over my life. Absolutely was not. But I cried out for that glimpse of hope. Mm. 
And in that glimpse of hope that he would forgive me, and that was when I grabbed the, uh, the, the gun, and I began to, to place that gun, Richard, upon my head because I said, I'm, there's no turning back. And when I did, I saw this vision that flashed before me, and, and it was this vision of what I would look like in some crazy, bizarre reason that I was going to survive a 38, um, with a, a 38 gun to my head. And um, I saw this vision, and I began to have a compassion for my family and for my mom and what they were going to find. And I, so I took the gun, and I placed it, took it from my head and placed it at my chest. Uh-huh. Hoping knowing, that, you would, that you would hit your heart? Yes, knowing, knowing that I would, I would hit my heart. And knowing with a thirty-eight caliber gun, even if I missed, it would be enough pressure to, you know, to do what it needed to do. Right. My word, for a 15-year-old, the anguish you must have been under. And so, you know, and, and, and that's why I want to speak out and, and, and talk to people about that, because there is hope. There is hope, Richard, and the anguish I was going through is the, is is what so many are going through because it is devastating. I mean, suicide, you know, here in the United States is the second and third leading cause of death from people from ten to sixty. Mm. Yes, it's 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 the mind boggling, and so when I look at that, I know that I'm not the only one who went through that. I'm not the only one, and most people don't want to talk about it because you get labeled and you get. You, you you know you get the the prejudice and the looks and the stigma that goes along with it. Um, I've overcome all of that now. Do you remember but the then, moment the moment you pulled the trigger? Do you remember that? You know, uh, plain as day, like it was yesterday. I remember the whole thing in, in vivid detail. And so when I began to pull that trigger, Richard, I had cried out to the Lord and I just said, "Forgive me." That's all I could say was, "Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me." And before I could pull the trigger, the gun went off. And when that gun went off, I instantly felt my lungs being filled with blood. I knew that I had accomplished my mission. And I knew that I was dying. I had become blind, I had become deaf. And my, bo- my soul left my body and began traveling at a speed that is faster than the speed of light. And at the same time as I began traveling, I began falling and falling and falling. I was completely helpless. I knew at that point I was no longer in control of anything. I knew that my destiny had been decided. And it was the most helpless, most horrifying feeling that you can absolutely imagine. You, you you can't imagine it. It is it is beyond the comprehension of the human mind. You knew where you were headed? And, yes. And the moment I got there and I landed and I knew that I was in hell, I knew instantly. I knew instantaneously where I was. I knew why I was there. And this is the thing, Richard, and my hesitation going into into great detail about you know the unforgivable sin is because when I was in hell, I realized at that moment, at that instantaneous moment, when I got there, I began. There, there was like an explosion that erupted on the inside of me, and it was this like a volcanic type eruption that was this burn, this like acidic burn that was so horrifying, all you could do was scream this 
not a human screen because you do not have a body <laughs> to to begin to guard that or to or or, or, or to shield the scream. It's the most blood curdling scream because it's all you can do. You're in so much pain, and so you feel it from the inside out and the outside in, and it's like this wind you know I did, there's there's a couple of different ways to describe it but i think the the most uh, way for people to understand it was like a massive fire hose and they were spraying it was like i was being sprayed with this fire hose of this acidic burn all over my body and i began looking around and i am seeing people people just like you and i that are there and there is a sea of people and we're close to one another, but yet we really were isolated from one another. We can't communicate. We can't touch. And we're screaming. Yet my knowledge was perfect because I could look at another person and I knew everything about them. I knew everything from their lineage. I knew who they were born to, who their parents were born to, and so on and so forth. I knew everything about them. I knew every sin they had ever committed. I knew everything they had ever done by looking at them. Their soul was completely transparent, and no knowledge was hidden. I knew everything, and it didn't matter. They looked at me, and they knew me. It was like a movie reel just flashing just just scenes of their life just flashing and you knew everything um they knew everything about me what el- what, what else did you see as you looked around was it fire and brimstone not like not like the human mind imagines no um the fire comes from within the burn comes from within and there 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 was like a sulfuric burn you could smell it it was it was a stench that goes beyond any anything that you can imagine and there were there were like different levels there were different levels there were different chambers that were there but i wasn't allowed to to go and see them and i but i knew that they were there i could look out from where i was this is a, a very vast place it's huge it's enormous and i could look out i could see the entire universe I could see the shape of the universe. It's like in an oval-type disk shape. I'm not a scientist. I don't know, but I know when they're able to discover it, they will find exactly what I'm describing. And you could look out. You could see all the planets. You, you could see everything. But the Earth was magnified. It was like all of the other was just stuff. The only thing that had great importance was the Earth. Theoretical physicists say that there is as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. 
Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Tamara LaRue, the author of A Second Chance at Heaven, is here. We're talking about a near-death experience during which she descended temporarily into the pits of hell. Did you have the sense that you were underground? No, not at all. I wasn't underground. This is another dimension. This is, this is, no, I wasn't underground at all. You know, I know many people believe that, that hell is actually in the center of the earth. No, they're wrong. It's not. It is clearly not. Because I could see the dividing line. Um, the, uh, of it, it, It's like a, a thick dividing. It's a massive, it's, it's a void. It's, it's like a massive elongated void that is where you could see the whole universe. And then I could look out and I could also see all the heavens. I could see the heavens of where God himself, the living God, dwells. And I could see the dividing line, and I could see it. I knew I would never obtain it. I knew that where I was, I was there forever. And as I began, I was still screaming the whole time, God, forgive me, God, forgive me. And there were other creatures there. And um, behind me was a creature I was not allowed to turn and and look at him. And I'm very glad um, but I wasn't. But he had many heads. He was a horrifying creature. I could feel the intensity of terror that reeked from his very presence. And the reality was this, Richard. The only thing that mattered was that I was separated from God. I was separated from Jesus Christ. I was separated from God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that was all that mattered. You didn't care about anything else. The only thing you cared about was that you were not in his presence anymore, and nor do you ever have the opportunity to be in his presence ever again. And the regret of that, the torment of that, every time you had the opportunity, every time someone wanted to tell you the truth, you thought about that and you agonized in regret. Because see, I wasn't in hell just because of suicide. That's not the only reason why I was there. I was there because I didn't surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
I didn't surrender my life to the Lordship of the true and living God. And that's why I was there. And so, you know, we can speak out and you have great debate all over our planet with some of the most, the, the best um, theologians, the most intelligent men, and everyone goes back and forth about opinion and, and, and knowledge that they've researched. And Richard, it's, it's, it's nothing more than the knowledge of man and it's vanity and none of it matters. The only thing that matters, it's not the pursuit of knowledge, it's the pursuit of truth and righteousness. And that was made very clear to me, that it is the pursuit of truth and it is the pursuit of righteousness. And that is why I am there. How there, long did you, was, did you have a sense of a passage of time? No, there was no time. Time didn't exist. And I have no idea how long I was there. And in time, just, it just didn't exist there and it didn't matter. Did but it I knew seem I like a long time? Oh, yes. It, it, it was long enough. Well, uh, <laughs> it, was, but if you, it was long enough it for like, me to learn and for me to know. Did it seem like days, hours? You know, it, it, not like that, because it, 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 time didn't exist. Right, right. So it was, it was just kind of irrelevant. And so when you look at that aspect and you think time never exists, time doesn't exist, I'm here forever, and I am separated from all goodness. And, and what happened to me, the torment that happened to me, was that the presence of God left me, Richard. The goodness of God left me. Now, that didn't mean that I still wasn't a good person, that I still didn't you know, want bad things to happen to people. Who I was as a person, my personality didn't change. But the goodness of God, I was completely separated from them, right. from, from God himself. And so I understand what fear is. Fear is torment. Fear is the absence of God. And I realize that. What that happened, fear isn't... What happened next? So as I'm sitting there and I'm realizing that I'm absent from God, and so no longer am I afraid, but I've become fear. And so I'm realizing no longer am I lonely, I've become loneliness, because I was separated from the unity. And so as I'm re the realization of what is happening to me, I begin crying out. I'm still crying out, Lord, send someone back to the earth to tell them the truth. Send someone back. I mean, it was like everyone, everyone there wanted someone to go back to the earth to tell the people on earth, to tell their loved ones, to tell strangers, be a voice for truth and to speak truth. And so that's what was going on in me. It was like, Lord, send someone back. Tell people the truth. And as I was crying that out, this wonderful, beautiful presence of the Lord began to, to come close. And I knew I could see it. And it just reached down. This hand just reached down. And it picked me up. And all of my torment, all of the torment that I was trying to escape on the earth, the void, the emptiness that I was trying to escape from is what I became when I left my body. But the moment that presence picked me up, Richard, I was completely restored and I was filled, that void was completely gone out of my soul and I was completely filled with peace, with joy, with serenity, and I began traveling over that vast expanse. And when I got over the vast expanse, I entered into the presence of the Lord.
But I was not allowed to stay. I was not allowed to enter into those gates. And I was not allowed to see anything in detail. And I knew I wasn't allowed. What did you see? This glimpse of heaven. What did you see? I saw the, the lights and the colors. Oh, my gosh. It's like the color that radiated from this place was life itself. It was like you felt the beautiful energy and life that came from the colors. And I I wasn't allowed to see it, but there again, I had full knowledge. And so it's like I knew, I understood where I was. I understood that I was in heaven where God dwelt. And this presence, that, this presence that took you there, was this an angel or was this the Lord himself? I believe it was the Lord himself. But I don't know. I, I, you know, and, and I say that because, you know, I believe it was the Lord himself that brought me in and covered, covered, carried me through. Because I believe it was the Lord's hand that picked me up out of the very pit of hell. What did he and look like? That's, see, that's amazing. See, it's not that I really, <laughs> this, is, this is what's so hard to explain. The spiritual world is not like the physical world. It doesn't operate like the physical world. And so it's not a presence like something physical. I can tell you he was bright and he was beautiful and the presence of love engulfed him. And I wasn't allowed to see anything else in detail, Richard. That's the beauty. I wasn't allowed to see it, but I knew what it was. Did he say anything to you? No. And when I began traveling over the heavens, I was completely cleansed. But see, I didn't, it wasn't, I knew I was being given a second chance to come back to, to, I knew I was being given a second chance. I knew that I was forgiven. And I was being cleansed as I was carried over the heavens. And I was filled with his presence and seeing the light and seeing and experiencing all of that. And, and as I, and I knew I was passing through, I knew I couldn't stay. So I could just, I was like passing over it. And I was moving fast. I was you, moving very fast. Did you see relatives, anything that we often associate yeah. with a near-death experience? I was not allowed to, but I knew they were there. I wasn't allowed. And um, I, why, I don't know. And it didn't, it didn't really matter. I was just very grateful and very overwhelmed by how much God's love embraced me and how he was so faithful to his word and how he heard my cry and he answered me and he forgave me and he gave me another opportunity. And as he carried me through the heavens, I came back into the universe. I crossed over the divide again, came back into the universe, and I was placed by a vessel of the Lord back into my body. And I opened my eyes and I saw a vessel of the Lord lift me up and just go right out the roof. And I opened my eyes. I could see again. I could breathe again. I could, I could hear again. What, when you came to, you were obviously, I'm, I'm guessing, in the hospital. I never lost consciousness. Oh, you never lost consciousness. Where had the bullet never. struck? The bullet struck just less than a fourth of an inch above my heart. And in, it was a 38 right there. It should have absolutely exploded my heart because the bullet actually ruptured. And it exploded inside of me. And it should have ruptured my heart. And it didn't. But when, when I came to and I called for my mom and she called an ambulance, the ambulance was there, I mean, literally within 
less, I mean, just record time, record time. I mean, it was within like two minutes, I think, the ambulance had gotten to my house. They were right around the corner. And when they came in and the paramedics looked at my parents and they were like, look, if you're going to even bother to take her, you got to go now. And they're like, what do you mean bother to take her? I mean, I look like death. I had the pallor death. I was gray. And they knew I wasn't going to make it. They were just like, she's gone. I mean, if you're even going to waste your time. And even though you were so conscious. I went, even though I was conscious. Because I was losing blood and I was in the, in the look. They knew. They were like, she's not going to make it to the hospital. But so if you're even going to bother to take her, you know, we can't waste a second. And so by the time I got to the hospital, my coloring was getting better. I went from the emergency room to intensive care to a regular room within a matter of a couple of hours. So I went from, you aren't going to survive this, to we have no idea why you're alive in a very short period of time. And the cardiologist that treated me would sit at the end of the bed, Richard, in the middle of the night. He would come in one, two o'clock in the morning, and he would sit at the end of my bed, and he would just stare at me. And he was like, I don't, I don't, I didn't do anything for you. I, I don't know why you're here. He was so immersed into the fact that he knew I was a miracle. He knew it was a miracle that when I got out of the hospital, he took all of my bills and he threw them in the trash and he said, I can't charge you a thing because I didn't do anything for you. You're a miracle. You're alive. And you know that. My so I don't word. Because you, you know that. How much blood did you lose? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much I lost. Did they have to, did they, were they able to remove the bullet or the fragments? Is there anything still left inside? I still have some left inside. They removed some, some, some went out, some exited, some um, they removed and some are still there. How, how long was your recovery? I, you know, I was, my recovery was almost instantaneous. Um, they left me there within, I mean, a couple of days, they were like, she's stable enough, she can go home. But I had to stay because, you know, someone who commits suicide is considered mentally ill, and I needed to be evaluated by a psychiatrist. And so as they wanted to evaluate me, um, that was the process that kept me in the hospital, not the bullet wound. Ah. The bullet wound, I was, I was healed with a, in a very short period of time. There's like, she's fine. Her lungs are fine. She's fine. Let her go home. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And 
what then is your emotional state at this point? Well, you know, you're, when you experience, have an out-of-body experience, I couldn't tell anybody at that point because I thought if I tell anybody, they already think I'm crazy. They already think I'm, I'm, I'm off my rocker. They're already, I'm already hearing talk that they think that I'm doing this for attention and all of these things. And so I didn't tell anybody what had happened to me. And so I had to process the shock of, of being exposed to truth and reality in a way that very few people ever see. And having the responsibility to come back and now begin to share that with everybody. And, you know, I was 15. I mean, that's, I was very immature. I mean, as a 15-year-old girl, I don't know very many 15-year-olds that are that, you know, mature at that age. And, and so I didn't tell anybody what had happened to me. And, but I knew I had hope. I had hope. I knew the truth. I knew the very reason why we were all created. I knew that we were created to, to worship and to praise and to have a relationship with God at that point. And so I knew that. And so all of the void that I had of the reason why I wanted to take my life was completely gone from me and has never come back. You're, it's gone because I was filled with hope. Then your, your psychological evaluation must have reflected that. They must have seen this person lying in bed and saying, this doesn't seem like a person who just hours ago or days ago tried to take her life. Right. You know, the, the psychiatrist that was pretty, um, he's pretty cold, you know, and he, he came in and the one of the things he did is like, why'd you do it? I was like, what? I mean, <laughs> couldn't you have introduced yourself? I mean, he was just like, why'd you do it? Like, you're a number. Tell me why and you can get out of here. And that was just his attitude. And I was like, are you kidding me? So I had a really hard time opening up and talking to him about, um, you know, the things that I was experiencing and, and the things that were troubling me and the reason why I had uh, the void uh, prior to the experience. And so um, I went into his office and he said, look, I just want to put you on antidepressants and you're going to be fine and come in and talk to me. And I knew I didn't need that at that point. You know, I don't recommend that. I, I you know, believe that, you know, counselors and, and wise counsel is a good road for many people to take. It's a good pathway for many people to take. But in my circumstance, it wasn't for me. And he wanted to give me antidepressants and he wanted me to come in for counseling. And so when I went in for my first visit, um, I thought, this, this, is, this is not the solution. The solution, I have found the solution. I have found hope. I have found my answer. And so I left and I didn't go back. And, and I was now on my road of journey, Richard, my, my, my journey of maturing and growing and, and learning how to, to live for God and, and maintain that hope and that, um, the health that I now had that I didn't have before. Any residual health effects? No. None? Zero. None. None. And, and, and did the experience of, a, not a glimpse, I mean, you had a, uh, a bit of a stay over in hell, uh, and then a glimpse of heaven, did that immediately change the trajectory of your life, or did you stumble along the way, or how has oh, the journey I, been? 
It completely changed my life, but I certainly stumbled a lot in the beginning because I had to learn how to grow up. I learned how to how to be mature. I had to learn how to take God's Word and apply it to my life. I, I had to learn how when I would go through circumstances and I would feel rejected, you know, it, it, my life just didn't change overnight. As a matter of fact, many things got worse in my life because now I've got this label over my head, and now I'm being rejected in areas I had never gone before. So I was encountering actually more emotional challenges because of the stigma that was now over my life. And I had to learn how to begin to take God's Word and apply it. I had to learn how to grow up and mature and be able to, you know, learn good coping skills and and learn uh, setting healthy boundaries and how to do that. And I'm still, I think, on that journey, <laughs> you know, learning how to, you know, be healthy in, in that road. I don't know that we're, we're a work in progress, but I absolutely went down a, um, that journey. And it took several years before I think I was mature enough to really um, – stand up and tell people the truth. It took me two years before I ever told anybody what I went through. And what was the reaction? They didn't believe me. They didn't believe me. How about your mother? And, you know, my parents were the first people that I told. And when I began telling them, they were, their question was, okay, so if you did go through that and all of that is true, then they had the same question you did. Well, why are you stumbling and falling? Why are you not walking a perfect, you know, Christian life? And why aren't you walking a perfect, righteous life? And and it was because, you know, I have to learn how to do that. I have to learn how to submit my flesh and become obedient to God. And I had to learn how to, you know, die to what I wanted and, and walk in faith and, and learn uh, those things. And so she... They were like, okay, if it's really true. And so they really began to to, to listen and, and hear me. And they believed me. They did believe me, but it took them a time to process what had happened. And so they do believe me. They do know what I experienced once they put everything together. And I went and I shared it with a pastor friend. Uh, and he believed me, and he knew. He was like, no, I absolutely know the way you're describing it, the way you're talking about it. Because I had never studied about hell in Scripture. And I didn't need to. Still don't need to. I know exactly what it is, where it is. <laughs> I, know, mm. I know all the details about it. And how do you, I, how do you respond to the materialists who would say, ah, that's all a trick of the dying brain? You know, I would tell them that they're being deceived, that they are, they are resting on the, the physical conclusion of science, and when they are resting on the knowledge of man— and there is not just my story. There are hundreds and thousands, literally thousands of people who have experienced the same things and have come back and who have talked about it. And you talk to any surgeon who has had people on their table who have left and come back, and they will tell you very similar stories. And then they will tell you it's not the dying brain. It is absolutely not a dying brain. It is real, it is more real than you and I, and it is a realm that exists, and it will exist when this planet is gone. And there is so much proof for that. And it's, it's a spiritual world. The spiritual world is more real than the physical world, Richard. And that's why you have so many puzzles of people going, you know, I don't understand this. Well, it's because it's, it's something that's happening in the spiritual realm that will manifest itself in the physical realm. 
How did you react several months ago when the Pope, and I'm guessing you're not Catholic, but it doesn't matter, uh, he's sure. an important spiritual figure, when, sure, they, when the Pope supposedly off the record to a journalist friend confided and said there is no hell, how did you react? With tears and great sorrow because he's deceiving millions of people. And the same deceit that he is spreading are the same deceit that I believed, the same deceit that I would never go to this kind of a place. I would never go to hell because I'm a good person. And although committing suicide, you can put that in debate, but look at all the people who think that hell does not exist. It does exist. And when we pursue truth and we pursue righteousness, the truth is revealed to us. But if we want to rest on the knowledge of men, we will be deceived and we will believe a lie. Like I believe lies and you will end up in hell and there is no second chance. There is no opportunity to come back out of eternity for everybody. I don't know why God gave me the second chance and he hasn't others. But, you know, he gives us multiple chances on earth, multiple chances on earth because his love is, his love is so amazing and so beautiful. He doesn't want any of us to go where I was. It wasn't created for us, Richard. It was created for the angels, the fallen angels. It was created for all the fallen angels. That's where it was, who it was created for. And it sorrows me to hear a religious leader that speaks with authority over our so many millions of people that he's speaking in ignorance because he doesn't know the truth. Tamara LaRue, thank you very much for spending some time with me. Thank you, Richard, for giving me the opportunity. Oh, and before we go, how do people get a second chance at heaven? You can get it at any major retail store. You can get it at lifechange.com. You can get it on Amazon and any other, any place they sell uh, the Christian books. You can pretty much purchase a second chance at heaven. Thanks again. Thank you, Richard. What an amazing and frightening story. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's in store for episode 97. We knew that we had finally solved the case through his confession. The history of rock and roll is littered with suspicious deaths and the unexplainable. The last thing he said to anybody was to Suge Knight, and it was, I'm dying, man. Lennon, Hendrix, Presley, Jim Morrison, the truth told by the experts and the people there. Revelations that will blow you. Your mind. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Coming up on the next Conspiracy Unlimited, Peter Davenport, the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, drops by with the latest on mysterious lights in the sky. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 